Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vertnach, going down the rabbit hole of dirty old books one by one. I am so excited to talk about this book today. I first read it as a child or a young teenager, probably around 12, 13. I can't be exactly sure. It's called Quench the Moon by Walter Mackin and it was published in 1948. But the edition we had at home was from 1974. By the time my parents bought this edition, it had been legal to sell a novel in Ireland for a few years. But when I read it, I had no idea that this was a banned book. No one ever talked about it in relation to censorship. It had zero aura of smut around it. I read it, as I read all the Mackin books I could get, without knowing that I was experiencing a forbidden text. I am retrospectively pissed off at this, actually. Now, as it happens, the second-hand copy I got this time round is exactly the same edition as what I first read. It's kind of surreal to encounter the text in precisely the same written form as the first time, after a number of decades. Walter Mackin wrote a lot about the west of Ireland, and this novel is set in Connemara, County Galway. I'll read you the blurb from the back, actually, to get us started. This is the story of Stephen O'Reardon, a true son of the wild and beautiful land of Connemara, of his hopes and ambitions, and of his passionate and stormy love for Kathleen, the sister of his bitterest enemy. Not bad for a first line. It's like an Irish Romeo and Juliet with nice scenery and wild and passionate thoughts. I'm into it so far. And it continues on to line two. It is also the story of Ireland after 25 years of liberty, like Stephen, new in its freedom and thought, yet primitive in its emotions, its people witty, bawdy, boozy, hard-working, loud-voiced or gentle, but never dull. Okay, that gives me a fit of the gawks, and I know some of you are swearing loudly already. Just look at the word primitive. That's enough to drive the blood pressure of any Irish person through the roof. There's a hierarchy being established. Of course, it's implied. Nobody is saying it out loud. But we all know that when the Irish are primitive, the English are civilised. It's a pretty colonial selling pitch. I mean, Pan Books is based in London, and this is presumably being printed with the British market in mind. Now, I'm not saying Walter Mackin is responsible for the blurb on the back. He probably didn't know what was going on at all until he got the physical book. 
so we can't blame him for this nonsense. At least, that's what I'm telling myself so I can continue to read the actual book. But first of all, what drink should I have with it? In this novel, there are many loving descriptions of pubs and pints. Drink isn't a social evil in this narrative. In fact, there's barely a hint that men used to run away to the pub to escape their families. Oddly, the only alcoholic character is an aged widow, and her affliction is charming rather than upsetting. So if you fancy a creamy pint of porter or a finger of whiskey, go for it. But I'm going to go for a cup of tea and a slice of soda bread, because fresh soda bread is the quintessential taste of the West, for me at least. And it's a currenty soda bread, laden with butter. To be honest, I was surprised there wasn't more emphasis on tea drinking, but I feel that probably reflects Mackin's vision of masculinity in this novel. It's a very boy kind of book. Nonetheless, I think he would approve of my homely choice of beverage because he dedicated this novel to his mammy, Agnes, as an inadequate tribute to her courage and fidelity. It's fair to say that Mackin did not think he was writing an obscene book. There's no way anyone, not least a very good Catholic like him, would write a dedication like that if they were trying to be risque. He was actually pretty shocked when this book and a number of his other ones were banned. So why on earth was this tale of star-crossed lovers romping in Connemara banned? When I began to read it, it felt extremely familiar, like I knew it backwards. And I probably do, since I reread a lot in my teens. I have read this more than once before. Reading like a censor was a good way to try and get past my old relationship with the text and focus on potentially subversive content. And it turns out there were lots of bold bits. To be honest, I'm a little bit shocked how daring it was for an Irish author of the 40s, because running throughout, there is a consistent discussion of extramarital sex and pregnancy. It begins with Martha, Stephen's mother, who was raised in a convent. All right, so she could be an orphan, born within marriage, but many contemporary Irish readers would have suspected that she was the child of a single mother. I mean, raised by the nuns was code for a mother and baby home, an orphanage or an industrial school. Nothing definite is said until page 33 when she and her husband Martin are fighting. The subject of their fight is Stephen, their son, whom Martin despises. Just keep him quiet, will you? Keep him out of my way. I don't want to see him. I hate the sight of him. You're his father, said Martha. How do I know that? shouted Martin. How do I know that I'm his father? You didn't know your father, did you? How do I know that you hadn't the tendencies of a streetwalker like your mother? You ghost-ridden swine, said Martha in a slow, vicious voice, and then she bent double and almost fell as Martin hit her on the left breast with a powerful clenched fist. You bitch, he said, you bitch. Well, those few lines have graphic violence, swearing and extramarital pregnancy, which is an impressive amount of objectionable content. In relation to Martha's parentage, there's almost a sense of relief that Martin says that quiet part out loud, because I know I was thinking it. Now I'm talking about me now. When I read this in the 80s, I had no knowledge of mother and baby homes, orphanages and industrial schools, because most of them were closed or very small, and they actually didn't form part of the larger discussion. 
But returning to what Macken is trying to do with illegitimacy and Martha as a character here, it's interesting that Martin brings this up now because nowhere else is it implied that Martha is anything other than a sainted mother. In fact, she's clever, noble and handsome. She keeps her house and her family perfectly clean. Her garden grows beautifully to show that her external appearance reflects her internal integrity and goodness. Her husband, with his malevolent mind, might think she was tainted by illegitimacy, but I don't think that Mackin agrees with that. Within his novel, we are supposed to think it's unjust to believe this accusation against her, to suspect that murky parentage could lead to flawed characters. Martha might not know her parents, but that doesn't mean she isn't worthy of our respect. So Mackin is offending the censors twice here. First, by referring to extramarital birth in Ireland, and second, by implying it's not a big deal even if it does happen. Brave, and it turns out a little foolhardy, if he was hoping to get an Irish audience for this novel. Now, of course, some authors got away with this, if it was just one reference, but Mackin kept returning to the theme of illegitimacy and premarital sex. I would argue that these are central themes and even form a key plot device at the end. Many characters bring up illegitimacy. It's not confined to Martha, who dies early on in the novel anyway. The local doctor, for example, mentions that Connemara people were more ashamed to have a TB case in the house than an extramarital birth. I know that sounds a bit stilted, and to be fair, it is. Mackin has this habit of stepping back from his characters a bit and giving us a lecture. Or maybe anthropology lesson would be a better description. For example, in chapter 10, Stephen is on his way to a wedding celebration. This is a really important moment for plot and character reasons, but the physical surroundings of the feast, the cultural background, its social context, that's what he tells us about for about four pages. Like there's this bit about gable ending. Gable ending is a favourite occupation of the Irish country people at any time. Many a reputation has been shattered forever and many a young girl has been courted furiously and successfully at a gable end. It is the poor man's doyle, the village hall and the recreation ground rolled all into one. Like, that's fine. It's nice to know, but it doesn't really drive the plot or the characters forward at all. And it gets worse on the next page. The whole page is a kind of a weird extended rant. Um, about what people should be doing in the countryside and why they should do it and what the general philosophical context is. I'll just read you a few lines out of it. There is very little in Connemara to amuse the people, which perhaps is why most of the young are deserting the farms of their fathers like migrating birds. The moralists tell them they should be happy with their lot, that the moving pictures wouldn't be good for their minds anyhow. And, they say, stick around the farm, my boy, and grow vegetables and food for the love of Ireland and the profit of the great middleman. Why, in the name of God, they say, does a country boy need amusement? Wouldn't the pictures and the theatre and going to those town dances only ruin his primitive mind? There's the word primitive again, this time used much more sarcastically to critique the idea that peasant life is deeply authentic. 
In fact, in those lines, Macken is directly questioning the censorship project, the one that sets up a binary between pure, unpolluted country Irishness and nasty urban foreignness. His narrator is deeply sceptical that farming alone is enough for rural people. But he goes on. I mean, there's a lot here. In the next paragraph, he mentions how neighbours are robbing each other or beating the shite out of each other and that there are high rates of illegitimacy in rural Ireland. Hardly a feckin' paradise, is it? It sounds like it's full of criminal degenerates. He then brings in the intelligent commentator from outside to sort of wrap up his rant. Here it goes. The answer is, say the intelligent countryman, that you must give the young man something else to amuse himself with after dark than playing around with girls or nursing grudges about this and that. And if you give him a look at a few good-looking acting women on the pictures, even a few times a week, he will not be inclined to do all the other things. Which may be right too. Okay, Macken, you need to stall on because I'm completely confused. Much earlier in the novel, Stephen was reading a letter written to him by Martha before she died. In this, she heaps praise on Connemara and its people, who are far superior, in her opinion, to those overly civilised, soft, corrupt city people. This is one of the things she writes, and it's back on page 86. Isn't it a better thing for a man to go in the middle of the night and steal a load of turf from his neighbour, or a sheep maybe, than to steal into his house and knock him on the head with a blunt instrument in order to steal a diamond necklace? I don't know, Martha. Is it really any better? Imagine having to be polite to your neighbours, knowing they were thieving your turf. Give me the anonymous crime in the city any day. So you see why I'm a bit confused. One minute the novel praises Connemara, the hard work and the clean air, because it creates super authentic Irish peasants. Then it goes on to argue explicitly for more cinemas, so the bored peasants would stop shagging each other. I'll admit I'm baffled by this. Also, his last point kind of turns the censorship argument on its head. Censors think fewer films and books mean less sex. But Mackin is saying no hobbies, as in no films and no reading, means more sex. (laughs) I don't know what to think, really. But it is interesting how he chooses extramarital sex to be the social problem that outsiders think needs to be fixed. I'm not sure if he agrees with that or not. It's a bit ambivalent. In his rant, he seems to suggest that it's true, but the world of his characters and the narratives that they create, they really don't take sex outside marriage that seriously. I think it's just a contradiction that he creates between that kind of standing back social commentary that he does and the characters themselves. It kind of doesn't always work, I think. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So Stephen, the main character, who we see most of the action through, doesn't really have any problem with extramarital sex. A number of times he thinks explicitly about the relationship between sex and love in the community that surrounds him. About halfway through the novel, he realises that Danny, the farm worker who lived on his farm when his mother was alive, had only stayed because he was deeply in love with Martha. When she died, Danny stopped working for Martin and lived on his own, but didn't get married or start his own family. This is a revelation to Stephen, who thinks that only modern, well-read, advanced civilizations are persecuted in love or have intellectual and deep emotional attachments to each other. He believes that Connemara people, the people he lives with, are pragmatic and unemotional about sex. That they act like animals, actually. And this is what he thinks from page 223. It was simple in Connemara. The children were used to sex almost since the day they were born. Crowded living had made them familiar with the bodies of each other, and seeing the animals in action had simplified the whole thing for them. So it all developed into a question of whether you should or you shouldn't. The church looked after the shouldn't part of it, and it was not unsuccessful, but Mother Nature took care of the other part, and many answered the call. Okay, I know this is from the perspective of a young man who is completely up his own arse. Still, Stephen has swallowed all that primitive man propaganda about rural Ireland whole. He doesn't really understand that humanity in the bog, where he actually lives, could be different but equal to that scene in the big cities. Stephen, by the way, is supposed to be widely read, inexplicably has an amazing library. Let's just leave that aside. Makes no sense. Importantly, though, all of that reading has given him inflated notions about how advanced the civilization in urban areas is. So when he thinks about the guilt-free, casual sex around him, he sees it as a reflection of a bestial nature in the people. This version of Stephen is not very nice, but it's all right. He's just on the cusp of realising he's been a judgmental shit, and worst of all, in Egypt. This realisation that sex in Connemara might mean something doesn't stop him being complete arse when he interrupts his father in a clinch with the female farm servant. He might be a slightly better man, but he's far from a saint. And Mackin needs this conflict between father and son to move the plot along. He needs Stephen to realise his dream of leaving Connemara for the big city. His girlfriend, Kathleen, is more than happy to leave with him and live with him until they can afford to get married, but he's actually horrified. And this is his reaction from page 213. That's a nice way for a young Catholic girl to be talking. Is that all the mass you have on the catechism? So depressingly, all of that growth and development about what sex might mean instantly boils itself down to Catholicism and catechism 
and telling his girlfriend what to do and how to think. Kathleen as a character seems very interesting in this exchange. She's asking to go live with him. She's suggesting how they would set up house. But because he tells her that he won't put up with it, she just quietly accepts it. So although she seems like a spiky kind of person, she's not really very deep as a character. And she's not the only woman who suggests cohabiting with a man before marriage. Another character, Nellie, says the same to the fella who fancies her. Like it's no wonder the censors banned it. Here were these beautiful Irish country girls suggesting to their menfolk that sex before marriage was grand. Anyway, skipping ahead very quickly to the end of the novel, we do work out that Stephen and Kathleen were having sex before he even left. Stephen returns home unexpectedly to see his father on his deathbed and then learns that Kathleen herself has just died, that she drowned in a local lake. Remember how Kathleen was described as the sister of his bitterest enemy? Well, Stephen works out that her own brother, the bitter enemy, killed her because she was pregnant with his child. The community narrative is that she drowned herself out of shame because she was pregnant. But Stephen rejects this because he believes she would feel no shame at all. And this is from page 378. He knew Kathleen. Would she do that? Kathleen found she would have a baby and it would not have been a shameful thing to her. No, it would not because she knew she loved Stephen O'Reardon and that he loved her. She would have been glad. The thought of what the neighbours would think would weigh no more with her than it did with him, which fact she knew very well. It was happening every day in Connemara. It was happening every day all over the world that people had given rein to love without thought of consequence. Isn't it interesting how he's comparing Connemara to the rest of the world? Ardent cultural nationalists, who are usually into censorship, want Connemara to represent perfection, the ultimate in Irishness, unpolluted virtue and piety. Yet here is Mackin ending his novel as he began it by bringing up the stigma of illegitimacy and claiming that it's a reality, that it happens all the time and that plenty of people feel no shame at all. And the refusing of shame here is central to the plot. Had Stephen believed in his society's narrative, he would never have worked out that Kathleen's own brother killed her. So I think a lot of this novel's structure and meaning comes from a consideration of illegitimacy in rural Ireland. But in fairness, you couldn't call this smutty or filthy. This is really a social problem novel. I mean, remember the dedication to Mammy. He writes about rural housing schemes, emigration, agriculture, marriage, money, work. The sex and love aspects are the human threads that hold all of that social commentary together. For the censors, this is an unacceptable novel. It's an example of an Irish author refusing to portray the Irish as clean living, pious people living in peasant wonderland and being happy about it. Mackin was a Catholic, but it's not a very Catholic novel. There are priests in it, but going to mass or confession or taking the sacraments, it's not really a big deal. Everyone might be Catholic, but faith and piety and the practice of religion, that's pretty remote from their lives. 
Macken's biggest offence was offering an ambivalent vision of rural Ireland. If you remember way back, I did an episode on the Taylor and Anstey, where all the politicians got really cross that peasant Ireland could be represented as not deeply religious and boring and conservative and quiet. Official Ireland was very possessive of its vision of the ideal peasant. Even suggesting that piety wasn't the defining feature of Irishness was kind of transgressive. And then Macken has the cheek to add in extramarital sex and pregnancy. I mean, he didn't have a hope of getting this one through, actually. But apart from the theme of shagging before marriage, what else in Quench the Moon was objectionable to the censors? Time to do a bit of censorship bingo to work that out. And the first box is breasts. Oh yes, both slutty and nice girl breasts feature prominently. Bestiality. Now, I always say no to this one, but this time I think I have a case for arguing it's possible. Stephen's belief that his community are like animals when it comes to sex brings livestock and humans into the same frame of reference. It's not quite bestiality. There's no accusations of sheep shagging, but it's definitely worth thinking about. In a way, it reminds me of the Playboy of the Western world. Go back and listen to those episodes for a more extended discussion on bestiality and rural Ireland. In some ways, I think Mackin left a lot of the bestiality out. In a truly realistic novel about rural Ireland, the evil bailiff would have been insulted with rhymes about bestiality, for example. I did some research on rural Mayo in the 19th century, where an unpopular man was followed round the town by the children who were chanting rhymes about his proclivities for sheep shagging. So I think Mackin left a lot of the coarse and vicious humour of small communities out. And that definitely included jokes about sheep shagging. But still, we can tick it, even if it's not as full-throated an exploration of the relationship between man and sheep as you might have expected. Next up, sex work. Yes, there is that reference to street walking. Of course, it is only something that happens in the big bad city. Or when nice Connemara girls wear makeup, they get accused of being practically prostitutes. Then we have racism. Well, regrettably, yes. If primitive versus civilised is going to be a theme, the nasty racist decides about black people just seem to be inevitable, unfortunately. The Irish need somebody to be better than if they're not going to be better than the Brits. So it has to be black people. So yeah, we can take that. Then drugs. No, nothing. Hardly any booze, actually. Politics. Yes, because some characters have a history in the Irish War of Independence. And then there's a long extended discussion about land rights, landlords and bailiffs, which kind of touches on political issues like maybe socialism or land redistribution. Next up is swearing. Well, yes, there's the odd bitch mentioned. Then infidelity. There's that accusation of it in the confrontation between Martha and Martin, but it's quite clear she has been faithful, so I don't think that counts. Crime. Well, there is a lot of crime, especially theft, in the novel. This is partly excused because it's argued that a landlord shouldn't own the fish in the river. Nonetheless, it's there alongside typically Irish relaxed attitudes to wrongdoing. And there's a fair amount of violent assault as well. That's definitely criminal. 
for all that there's crime, there don't appear to be any police. Genitalia. God, no. Not a chance. Abortion. Also very much no. Orgies. Uh, no, all that public courting against gable ends or in gateways only features couples. Then sexual assault. Well, there is one very brief reference, which is a little bit mad. When Martha writes her letter to Stephen praising Connemara, she writes, Whoever heard in wild Connemara of grown men violating little children? In her opinion, such evils could only happen in the city. Bad news for you there, Martha. But anyway, next up, extramarital pregnancy. Well, yeah, I mean, the theme runs through the whole book and is essential to the plot. Masturbation. Uh, no, not at all. Sex toys. No, sorry. Feminism. I do have to say no to this one. The girls in the novel are tough and outspoken, but they really only exist in relation to the men, whether as boyfriends or wives or father figures. It's not really great for strong female characters or women taking charge of things in general. Next up, divorce. No, because it's both illegal and unthinkable. Contraception. Same as divorce. Not there. Menstruation. No. Blasphemy. While I suspect this novel wasn't religious enough for the censors, I can't see any attacks on God. Stephen is a little bit dismissive of bishops at one point, which is a serious offence, but it's only one quick line. I think on balance, especially given Mackin's own personal belief, no. Then oral sex. No, there are no details on the sex act itself. Graphic violence. Well, yes, lots of fighting and murdering. Definitely tick this one. And finally, LGBTQ plus content. No, I'm afraid not. So Quench the Moon by Walter Mackin gets 10 out of 25. It's quite a respectable score. I feel like Mackin deserves extra points for the bestiality alone, but sadly can't break the rules. I am surprised it scored as high as 10. Before I started reading it, I had like a 5, maybe a 6 in my head. So would I recommend you read it? I'm torn on this. Honestly, I think my relationship with this novel is too complicated to offer a neutral recommendation. Anything I vividly remember from my teenage reading occupies a weird place in my head. The second-hand copy I found for this episode is the exact same edition I read when I was 13. It's a pan paperback from 1974. Lots of the paperbacks in my parents' bookcase were from this publisher and of this vintage. The front cover is a picture of mountains and a small river in the countryside, presumably the West. When I first read it back then, I thought it looked like the part of Mayo where we holidayed every year. To be honest, finding the same edition gave me a bit of a queer turn because it's so closely associated with my family home. So I'm not sure I can tell you whether I enjoyed it this time or not. It's all a bit weird. But there was one part I really disliked the complete erasure of the Irish language. Although it's set in Connemara, there's never any hint that this is the Gaeltacht, a place where people speak Irish in their daily lives. It's peculiar because Mackin himself spoke Irish and worked in Galway's Irish language theatre on Taivyarch. Yet he wrote a novel about Connemara as if Irish doesn't exist. I'm also shocked that Mackin didn't even acknowledge 
when Stephen moved to Galway that he might have felt alienated from the town because of the languages spoken there. Honestly, this aspect of the novel is, for me, a complete headfuck. He's translated all these Irish speakers and their culture into English without even acknowledging that they don't speak English. I know he has to write in English to sell lots of books, but it's the fact that he doesn't even acknowledge their cultural difference that really annoys me. Anyway, I have a lot of big feelings and thoughts about this, but that doesn't answer the question. Should you read it? I do think Mackin is pretty important to how Irish people think about themselves. I'm not the only Gen Xer who read everything he wrote, and I know my parents read much of his output as well. He went deep into our souls without us noticing. His novels about the famine and the Cromwellian invasion were hugely influential in shaping popular historical understanding. None of them were banned. I don't think the censor has ever had a problem with the evil English oppressing the noble Irish as a storyline. So if you're nosy about Irishness as a construct, yes, do read some Mackin. Otherwise, I'm ambivalent. Next episode, I'll travel far away from rural Connemara to board the Orient Express. It will be my first foray into the writings of Graham Greene, another Catholic novelist who was surprisingly banned many times in Ireland. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds dirty. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.